out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the scars all the way from Edinburgh, Scotland. Because I recently spoke to Paul Research to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Plus, just to say, uh, Cherry Red Records has just released a triple CD box set. Well, triple CD, you know collection of uh, material featuring author author on disc one and um, lots of other stuff as well demos and I do believe a live album as well so um, and there's some fantastic sleeve notes as well they've really pushed the boat out so um, yes buy it for Christmas it will blow your mind so well put together actually so look that's Cherry Red Records that's the scars and uh, this is going to be the interview with Paul so after several minutes of casual chat about life love and all that as I probably mentioned uh, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years Paul it's going to be over to you well up until about the age of 10 my parents choice of music was what we listened to at home and uh, my mum was very into classical music so I've, uh, you know, grown up hearing classical music in the background all my childhood. And I played piano and violin as well, um, you know, and, and did two lessons and everything like that. So that was it. When I was, when I got into like, a, a, but also uh, the beat, the Beatles were quite happening, you know, so like, um yeah, so that was about it, as far as I can remember. Oh, maybe a bit of Scottish folk song. There was a band called The Corries, um, and, uh, you know, Scottish folk was, was something that people listened to as well. Yeah, so was, it, was that quite um, traditional Scottish kind of music? It wasn't like the Incredible yeah. String Band. It, they kind of, the Incredible String Band grew out of that tradition. So Mike Herron, Robin Williamson... And they they knew Scottish folk, but then they went off and got interested in Indian folk and you know Middle Eastern folk as well, and and they had a lot of different influences. But these were these bands that I'm talking about, the Galliards, Robin Hill, and Jimmy McGregor, and so forth. They were singing a kind of mixture of Gaelic folk songs, Glasgow street songs. Uh, you know, to be honest, it was quite a middle-of-the-road type of thing. Yes. Stuff that you could sing along with, a proper tune, probably backed with acoustic guitars. So, so were you, was it quite a sort of, as a, as a household goes, you know, having classical music and having music lessons, were you, was it quite a progressive kind of liberal family? No, not particularly. My parents were pretty... My dad was a, an engineer, came from a working-class background, um, my mum was had been to uni. She was a doctor, so you know we uh, they were not uh, not but they were not bohemians, uh, you know, in that sense that I think you mean. Yes, bohemian no. hippies. No, no, they weren't. They weren't. <laughs> we, we were me and John were the first bohemians in our family. <laughs> right. But obviously, you know, the early music lessons uh, were, were sort of beneficial to your sort of later musical period. So then as the 70s progressed and we sort of got very excited with that world that was glam and occasionally with a bit of heavy metal, where did your sort of journey go? I mean, was it, was it sort of that, that kind of route or were you, 
influenced by other people who might have turned you on to sort of prog rock or Alex yeah. Harvey. Yeah, that's right. So my my cousin Jeff Mackey uh, was a supreme guitarist, and he had taught himself, and he had a spare guitar. And when I was fourteen, I I wanted nothing more than Jeff's guitar, the spare one, and uh, I got it. And he kind of showed me a few things, but basically I taught myself. Um, and by this time I was like well into pop music from the age of twelve or so. I mean, I'm just talking about the pop that comes on the charts in. Yes. in 1970, 71, and so forth. So, Mark Bolan was there, but also, you know, you you listened to Middle of the Road and Gil Gilbert O'Sullivan and things like that as well. You know, I wasn't really discriminating at that point. No, we still we still like Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap by Middle of the yeah, Road. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So, I mean, everybody did. So then, uh, classical music, right? There was this um, this uh, album by ELP. Um, which was a crossover classical music album. And I remember playing that a lot, pictures at an exhibition. Oh, yes. Mazorsky. And, and that uh, was a kind of entry point for me to get into Prague. Um, so I started listening to Prague. I, I got, and I, there was friends at school and people in the school band and so forth who, who were like just a year or two older that, you know, I admired because they could already play the guitar pretty well yeah. and uh, I, you know um like that so i got into yes and a, a jethro tull seen some incredible shows these programs are just incredible the, the way they performed and actually when i look at what's available now in terms of you know computers and, and pyrotechnics and stuff that you you'll see some amazing things now but then it was all physical so yes played with these huge fiberglass sculptures on stage um for example yeah, yeah. so, so did mean, you that, so did you get to see did you get to see these live yeah yeah, yeah. Nice. i'm, so I'm only talking about bands that i've seen play live so at the time i guess um there you know that's what i was seeing i was going to see bands that were big enough to play at the Usher Hall in Edinburgh, which was kind of like, it's a 2,000-seater venue. Um, so, and mostly like, if you like, album bands. So we, somebody like uh, Hawkwind play there. Uh, Alex Harvey famously played there. The whole place was trashed. There wasn't any more gigs there for about 15 years after that night. Uh, they reduced the seats to match room. It was just incredible. It was a, a seated. It must concert. have been. It must have been terrifying. It was just tremendously exciting. It's, yeah, oh, actually, yeah, I, I could imagine I would have been yeah, right there, smashing things. Up. You, you were, you were part of it. You were in it. You know, it was just amazing. Uh, and then, like things like that would happen. Really weird things. I mean, still going on at the Usher Hall. I went last year, I went to see this band called Mac DeMarco, which is the most insanely anarchic thing I've ever seen in my life, far eclipsing any punk show. Have you ever heard of them? No. They, they play, they just play kind of like slick fusion jazz pop. It's a bit reminiscent of Steely Dan or something. And then they get drunker and drunker and drunker. And, they, and then 
the audience gets on the stage and they go into the audience and it just ended in a full-scale riot with bouncers tackling this disabled guy who got up on the stage to fight them. And <laughs> it sounds like I'm making it up. But no, but it sounds excellent. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so there was good things happening, like, but I still was not really part of any tribe. I was just like very, very interested in, you know, good music. So with the, with the guitar, were you particularly interested? I know the bands, but were there guitarists that you started to try and sort of copy and emulate? Uh, well, apart from my cousin Jeff for a few years, and then I was teaching myself chords and everything, but I didn't really know uh, where to take a lead because there was a massive gap between what I could do and what I saw people doing on stage. And my sort of guitar heroes were like Steve Howe from Yes. He's a virtuoso player, you know, he, he has been for decades. And um, how could I come close to that? And I just had no idea of how to ever, I wouldn't even dream of, you know, how, would, how do you get into a band? Anyway, I had no idea. So, and then, and then as we got further through the 70s, you, you can tell listening to records now that pop kind of raised the bar and when glam rock happened, the influences were no longer just about musical competence, but it was about artistic creativity and, you know, people like Eno coming in and uh, I'm sure it was, you know, a real groundbreaker um, and, the, and not everybody in the band was a virtuoso player and it began to appear a bit more achievable but they they set themselves apart in other ways like looks wise yeah uh, by, by you know discussing uh their sexuality or whatever to differentiate themselves from normal humans so you don't you, it wasn't really until punk uh, actually maybe you could say the ramones was the first band that i really literally could play that i could play their album i could hear it and I could play along with it, you know, easily, uh, because practicing pays off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, so the Ramones 76, was that kind of a moment? Yeah, it definitely was. And, and even more so when they came to Edinburgh and suddenly just this, you know, that was, everyone talks about the Clash gig at the, the White Riot Tour, which was a phenomenon and, and a really a, a big moment for all of the Edinburgh punks to meet each other kind of thing. But actually the Ramones at Clouds was just a like awe-inspiring occasion. Yes. I mean I I it's kind of interesting the difference between that sort of New York punk scene and the London or the, the UK punk scene, because New York had a had quite a different quality to it really, looking back at it. I mean, you know, a lot of it obviously there was a lot of heroin in, in New York during that time. But there was also the kind of those major clubs like Max's, Kansas City and the CBGBs and the Mud Club. And um, yes, people didn't have to sort of buy into the sort of the punk look so much. They just looked more like normal kids. In 1976, that, that kind of differentiation between punk uh, styles didn't really exist. You were still, I mean, one, one of the big hits of the night was... American Girl by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And in the charts was um, Jonathan Richmond. 
Roadrunner and and um, and punks listen to that stuff too. And one of the most successful uh, inverted commas punk bands was the Stranglers, um, and they were pretty far away from the kind of template, if you like. But they grabbed the audience all the same. Yes, well, absolutely. John Lord with his um, almost sounded like the Doors. He probably did sound like the guy from the Doors, didn't he? Really, let's face it, on keyboards. Wasn't it Dave something? <laughs> John Lord's Deep Purple's keyboard player. Oh, God, John, yeah, sorry. <laughs> John Lord, I don't know. Anyway, yes, that's true, actually. Got you there. <laughs> John Lord, John Lordy Lord, yes. I was listening to Deep Purple earlier today, actually. So I, I saw really... Rainbow with John Lord, actually. Did you? Dear old Richie Blackmore. <laughs> Nice, God, you did, you did. So when did you suddenly, as, as the, the 70s were trucking on and you saw the Ramones and the Clash, um, when did you start to sort of feel more like you wanted to be from the bedroom guitarist into forming a band? Oh, well, I was in bands a bit earlier than that. So we, I was in the, a, a school band uh, when I was 15. Yeah. And yeah, I played guitar and singing. and. I tried to join a kind of kind of proggy type band in Edinburgh, but not quite competent enough. So uh, me and my brother John were playing music together, kind of sporadically at home. Um, yeah, so I guess from about fifteen onwards. Yes, and were you inspired by bands? Um, you know, there were the, those. There, there was the band called the Pratts, weren't there, from from Scotland? Did they? They were very young. Yeah. I think, I don't know, I think the Pratts will tell you they were inspired by the Scars. Right. Who came first? I don't know. I can't quite remember the chronological order. <laughs> they, they are, the, so the Pratts were headed up by Paul McLaughlin, who is younger brother of the Scars drummer, Steve. Right. Okay. Yeah. So they were, they were like um, a few years below us at school. But uh, uh, yeah, no, they were around at the same time, though. They were, we played, we played a few gigs together. Yes, and just going slightly back to to the Ramones, because w- would you go as far as to say that if it hadn't been for the Bay City Rollers, we would not have the Ramones and thus punk? That's a really sweeping statement, isn't it? You could have uh, left out the Ramones because uh, Bay City Rollers are from Edinburgh and punk, punk would have happened. But for what really started punk was in Scotland, I think, was for me, was the Sex Pistols, not the Ramones. So, I mean, the, like Luke's, I will, although I said, I mean, the Ramones said, well, I'm here, right? Like, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> the, sex, the Sex Pistols started punk, as far as I'm concerned. I know there were, I know, that, I know about all the New York scene and everything, but for me, that's, and as soon as the Sex Pistols uh, were reviewed in the NME, then I realised now is the moment to to do it. Right. Okay, then. And they even were... Though, yeah, even though it was England. But yeah. <laughs> yes, that famous... Um, the famous rivalry. Was, nobody, nobody else was... I mean, I guess at that exact same point, lots of people all over the country was thinking the same thing. Yes, absolutely. So then, so when did when did the um, when you did you put the scars together? 
Uh, yeah, it was 1977, so it would be February that we first started to uh, come together uh, as a band and we uh, practiced for quite a few months trying to get good um, and then I, I really can't remember unfortunately the date of the first gig we did it at Palermo and, and uh, quite a few people came. It's a long, long bus journey. Three quarters of an hour bus journey from the centre of town. I didn't really think anyone would come, but it was pretty busy. Right. Um, yeah. And then yeah, I don't know. We we were just anointed in that way. We always seemed to have people who were willing to come and see us. Yeah. So it was just the the right place, right time. Everyone talks about timing, don't they? In the world that is music. Which is I, was very, I, I was really conscious of that as well because I just thought, you know, I, I'm pretty sure this, this doesn't happen every year. You know, this is the first time there seems to really be an opportunity. And uh, we just got out there and just did as, as many gigs as we could do. Yes. And did the chemistry with the band come together quite smoothly? Did it feel like you were on a mission, that you were a gang, that there was a call, there was something about it that was going to sort of... It had legs. Well, it was, I mean, we weren't like the happy family type band like uh, U2 or something like that. Um, so there was always, you know, considering there was only four of us, there was always a bit of a kind of rivalry and, you know, people trying to outdo each other. And I think that probably that kind of constitutes what you might call creative tension. Yes. But sometimes it, sometimes it was creative. Sometimes it's just tension. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how do you, do, I, mean, when, I mean, when you started sort of um, writing material, did that also sort of come together? Because mostly people, you know, they, they just kind of, I don't know, play something from the monkeys, don't they, or the Beatles, and then they start to sort of try and change it about a bit and then try and make something original. How did it work? With the creative process for you and the band well it was we uh from the very start we did do some cover versions to to make a whole set but obviously the the whole main focus was on our own original material and the singer came along with a book full of ideas and he had been similarly trying to get something started on his own and he had songs and he had ideas and I did too, and you know, and and the the uh, drummer Callum just came fully formed, absolutely phenomenal drummer, and so and and John uh, on bass has always always been a good player, yes. so it just I didn't realise how lucky we were, uh, and I just assumed that everybody else was operating in the same way, so it was very quick um, to you know, to get started. And actually on our new triple CD retrospective, you can hear uh, us playing our second or third gig um, and the, we already sound like quite a, quite a unit. Yes, that is quite some package actually. That's the third, uh, that's the third disc, isn't it? Did you, I mean, did, was it the main, the main sort of creative spark? Was that between you and Robert? Um, Robert, um, yeah, uh, guess so, but I, I'm, I won't 
but it's hard to say. I mean, I think I'm the main person in the band, but so does everybody else. I think that was what the band was like. Yes. Yeah. So what, how did you how did you sort of deal with that kind of the, the creative split? Did you sort of have ownership of your own material? Or did you decide as a band to split it four ways? Yeah, we took our lead from the Sex Pistols. Every member would be credited equally. So that seemed like a good principle. And we stuck to that. And then uh, we did change members at one point. And uh, the way that we apportioned it was, well, the uh, four-way split between the people who were on the recorded version of the song. Yes, that that, that seems to work. Did that sort of, did that work out in the long run? Well, it, it, I think it was a fair way to do things because a lot of the success of the songs wasn't just the, the a, lot, a lot of bands say, okay, the guy that writes the lyrics gets half, the guy that writes the chord shapes gets half. Um, but we were fairer than that because I think the bass arrangements and the drum parts were equally contributory to the whole, uh, you know, the whole vibe of the song. Yes, absolutely. And did you, I mean, because you sort of very much sort of fit into that sort of the world that is the post-punk period, don't you, with that? It has, there's more to it than just what was there a couple of years beforehand in the kind of indie charts, isn't it? Yeah, again, we were pretty fortunate to support some really influential bands. So we toured with Susie and the Banshees. We played a lot of gigs with them. Um, we played with the Buzzcocks. We played with the Human League of quite a fair bit. Uh, Gang of Four, uh, Polly Murray's Band After Penetration. So, uh, I mean, we t- we got good gigs and we had um, early, early kind of like uh, exposure to their audience, I think. That, yes. Um, that did us quite well when we brought our own album out. Because the one thing I noticed and from that period that, you know, on one level, we, you know, it was quite fortunate in the sense that there were these kind of the gatekeepers at the time, you know, there was these three or four weekly papers, you know, from the NME, Record Mirror, Sounds and Melody Maker. And then, you know, you had people like John Peel who had, you know, even though it was probably small listening kind of figures compared to Steve Wright in the afternoon, it was still kind of quite influential. And then, you know, every little town and city would have an indie night or an alternative night, wouldn't they? So, you know, people were able to sometimes, you know, get that first single out and then get sort of a phone call from some promoter in Norwich or Bristol or Leeds and then sort of get in the trusty, you know, transit van and and play to people that weren't either, you know, friends, fam- family or anybody else, you emotionally blackmailed to see you. So it, it kind of gave people that ability to feel like there was some form of progress going on. Yeah, although um, I must uh, tell you something about small Scottish gigs. Um, so you would go and play and then afterwards, like <laughs> there was, uh, all the tribes were represented. So the DJ would play a particular uh, uh, like the Shaking Stevens song, the two two Ted's would get up and dance, and then the next it would be a punk song, and like three or four punks would get up and dance, and then it would be like uh, Spandau Ballet would come on, <laughs> and all the new romantics. So they all kind of like took turns. Uh, very funny. Yes, I, it was a bit tribal actually, and you couldn't mess mess around with other people's tribe. So with them, with the progress of a, of a band, you know, I sort of realised there's this sort of a 
quite a clear narrative, isn't there? Sort of a three to five years for an indie band, especially. But, you know, um, you know, getting together, you have that 12 month honeymoon period where you're sort of getting the sound and then, you know, getting a single, you know, John Peel plays it. It's like, wow, we've got the John Peel show and then get an invite to the session and then the first album. So what was what was your sort of narrative on that that level? Well, you could, I mean, you more or less just described it there. I mean, we went from pretty much a bedroom band to playing gigs in a year. Uh, then the second year, we, we got picked up by a fast product and did a single. Um, and then, then we kind of had like a six months of good times and then maybe about another six months of kind of diminishing returns and they, we had to find a, another record company or really go under. And uh, fortunately, we were fortunate enough to to get picked up by another record, but it wasn't smooth sailing and the next couple of records didn't really crack it like the first one had. Um, and, uh, you know, we realised uh, that, you know, we're pretty much in last chance saloon when it came time to do the album. These days, I don't think we would have been able, even allowed to do an album, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, most record companies just would not have the patience after a couple of, they weren't done singles, but, and they're still interesting to listen to, but they didn't set the heather on fire. No. But then you got picked up by the ID magazine, didn't you? You had a, a, a song on on the on the sort of a flexi disc, Your Attention Please, which must have felt quite amazing. Yeah, that was uh, a big boost. Um, ID magazine was like really there was really cool people involved, and it was quite a thing in London. That was really one of the start points for you know blitz and that particular kind of club culture. Um, and at the same time, we were coming down to London a lot and playing a lot in London. Uh, we played with Bauhaus and we played at Billy's Club, which was a forerunner of the Batcave. Right. Uh, yeah, so we were kind of like on the fringes of, of that scene as well. Um, so yeah, were you... I, I it was good. Yeah. We, shared, yeah. we, they, we shared an office. Our record sleeve designer who did... Uh, all three of the singles on pre and the album um, shared a studio with ID. That's how it came about. Oh, nice connection. Because you, you had a very good image, didn't you? I mean, did you work on the image of the band? Well, again, it was styled by uh, Celia Matlock, who, who was a kind of a friend of Al McDowell, our, the graphic designer that did our stuff and that introduced us to ID. And, and so uh, Celia was a fashion designer and she kind of invented the whole, uh, the whole look. Yes. And, and I sort of look at your publicity photographs. Everyone looks very mean, moody, but very sort of, um, yes, staring at the camera. Did that, was, 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 that, was that kind of, were you kind of, had you been given some sort of hot advice about sort of how to look? Uh, no, they've got a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of those photographs hit the cutting room floor. I mean, the the ones that you've seen are the ones that made it to promo. Yes, yeah? 
But I mean, Sheila Rock, we spent hours with her uh, doing stuff um, inside her studio and in Holland Park. And like probably only, you know, three or four uh, picks have survived in public. Yes. But that, that particular uh, session actually was for Smashes. So the idea was like to do it really ultra poppy and, you know, like teen heart, heartthrob type of idea. And we, we, we didn't always look like that. So when we started off, we were pretty much art, punk, and uh, it was an intentional progression. The first time I played in Edinburgh, people were like, <laughs> there's... Uh, totally ridiculing us for having sold <laughs> out or whatever because we weren't wearing our school jumpers at the gigs anymore. No, you weren't looking like the undertones at all, were you? In that sort of mm. slightly nerdy way. It was all, yeah, it just, it just had a certain image and obviously Sheila Rock's kind of married to me. Uh, she's wonderful. But um, I mean, I've always had this idea that, you know, when you start to feel uncomfortable and you're wondering if you've push it too far that probably means that you're on the right track so yes I mean David Bowie must have felt like that most of the 70s I would imagine because that was yeah. quite out of his comfort zone at the time so yeah I mean looking back it all seems very obvious but at the time it must have felt quite sort of you know you're quite out there yeah so um Yes, dear old Sheila, Sheila Rock. So with the with the sort of the, with the progression of the band, I mean, were you, I mean, were you having a problem of who your audience was at that stage? Because there was obviously a bit of a new romantic kind of thing going on, and there was the the, 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 the sort of gothic scene, and then there was the early, you know, indie scene with people like you know Orange Juice and Simple Simple Minds, wasn't there? And, well, and I, I mean, other people put their overlays onto it. I remember Bob last telling us you know what his opinion was of our new stuff and so forth but i not you know and i think he kind of went off the band but um but i was really never troubled i always thought musically we were like moving moving ahead in a good way and changing all the time so that didn't bother me and the the demos all sounded like okay i just um and, and when we were doing gigs, we were still pulling in people. So um, gigs was never a problem. And Scars Live is, was quite a force. Yes. So, you know, it was, an, it was an exciting event and people would come. It was entertaining. So that live side of things was like nailed. And then, um, I mean, we just got better and better actually live. But uh, we could, that we did go through this bit of a bleak period when we did that couple of singles, the first couple of singles for Pre, which we which sounded a bit too clinical and clean and just not, you know, we didn't, we were not comfortable. I don't think that that was us at our peak. Yeah. And so I was really worried about this. I thought maybe there was something inherently wrong, like, with the band that we it wasn't coming across in the studio i just couldn't understand why uh you know so yeah and did you i mean and did you sort of feel because because obviously now you know it's different when you look back at things but there was this phenomenal sort of explosion of, a, of scottish bands and sort of and and characters that were appearing from you know people like alan horn you know, to, you know, the whole stuff with, you know, like people, I suppose, Alan McGee doing his kind of music stuff. And then he did the club in sort of London, didn't he? 
Is it the living room? It's one of those. God, it's the, the room. room. Right. The that was room. the room above the pub. The Roebuck was called for one night a week. The living room. The living room. Yes. I mean, did you sort of feel that you were on a sort of a, a cultural zeitgeist at this stage? Well, the funny thing was, like, they were all, we were all friends. So we all knew each other. Then kind of, like, we'd all seen each other playing quite a bit. And we knew we'd, we'd done a few gigs with Joseph Kay. And knew I was at Orange Jesus, like, second ever gig, I think. And, you know, and went up to tell them how great I thought it was at the time. I, I was really, at this point, thinking, you know, Scottish bands are are good really good um so I, I just thought it was fantastic that they were all doing so well at the same time yes absolutely which was you know and i mean when you look back at it because there was that compilation that came out in a film as well wasn't there big big gold dream yeah and um and there's also been a fantastic book that has been published as well about sort of gigs in scotland that i do believe came out kind of recently during lockdown mm-hmm. which yeah, I haven't actually seen that yet. I'm hoping somebody's going to get it for me for Christmas. Let's face it, we're all hoping for that, aren't we, really? <laughs> we won't be disappointed. So then, yeah. of, yeah. so so the so the album Author Author came out. Mm-hmm. When you were recording that, did you feel like it was? How was the atmosphere with recording that album? Uh, it was very different. Um, because, and I, a lot of that was due, uh, it was comfortable and relaxed. And we could see that the producer and the engineer kind of really believed in us. And, um, you know, it was just generally better than the previous trips that we'd had in the studio. So we had the chance to kind of like stretch out a bit. And actually the whole session from... Uh, the very first day right until the final mix was, uh, I think, less than, less than three weeks. Um, yeah, so it was just, we, we nailed a lot of the uh, backing tracks in the one take. So there was time then to experiment and do overdubs and stuff like that. So by this time, we were a very, very tight unit um, from all of the gigs and everything. And we just... Somehow we got the right sound and everything was good vibes. So uh, I never worried about that one in quite the same way. Yes. So that, and, and you had, yeah, like you said, everything had been well. And the atmosphere with the band, was that also sort of going well? Yeah, because, um, you know, if, you, if things are going well, then that, that kind of lifts the mood as well. Yes. But then... But then the band sort of finished quite soon after that, don't they? What happens next? Uh, okay, so um, we spent about a year uh, touring. This had been um, a year touring basically Europe and America. We went to states as well. And just basically the kind of like the rivalry between the band kind of everybody got a little bit fed up with each other and a bit bitter. Um, we went in to do a follow-up single. Uh, we didn't know what to do to to be, because All About You was like our, our most chart-friendly song. That was what we thought. So we didn't know what to do next. There was 
idea of maybe releasing everywhere I go. And I went in and put some piano on that too. I don't know what I thought I was doing there, but yeah, that's what we did. And uh, and then we remixed one of the other tracks as well. It might have been Leave Me in Autumn. But so we decided to record a new track called Bone Orchard. And he just we just whatever it was that was magical about recording the album it was the same same team but a different studio um, and uh, i i was like trying stuff with guitar sounds and uh, what we ended up with just sounded a bit formulaic um, and what, what was that it, it, didn't, it didn't come out it's called bone, bone orchard right so that song, I think, is somewhere on the on the new compilation. But it is still one of our best songs. But we just didn't nail it. We didn't get the right vibe in the studio. But it's a pity because the demo was so good. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, and this sometimes happens when you do a good demo. It's very hard to 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 step it up and do even an even better proper recording of it. Yeah, absolutely. So did the band have a moment, because actually it's interesting you played America, because often that's that's a moment that when I've spoke to a lot of people, they've, they've often mentioned going to America, and then in the next breath they mention that they break up because it just sort of finished them off. So how was, was the American experience quite intense for you guys? Yeah, to be honest, I think the, the crisis had already occurred before we went to America. So the American tour was booked quite far in advance of us traveling out there, um, I think. Um, yeah, so, you know, going to America was pretty amazing because it's my first time there. So it was wonderful to be doing it, you know, as a member of, you know, with our touring band, you know, it was pretty amazing. Yes. Um, and the, but the gigs themselves were just like, club ordinary club gigs that we were doing did you play in new york at all yes we did we played at the mud club we played at place called chase chase plaza Mm, i can't remember now we we played for about four gigs two downtown new york two new york state we also played in um Philadelphia and we played um, Washington um, which is upstate New York it's we amazing with, I mean, yeah we played with the waitresses in Boston it's crazy, crazy the waitresses yeah, yeah incredible huh that but they were the most annoying people to share a dressing room with because they were like one of them had a trumpet <laughs> We don't shut up. Oh God, that is not what you need, is it? A trumpet player warming up on no. that stage. No. And did you did you sort of get a thrill from that experience playing, you know, at the Mud Club and various other clubs in New York? You know, because yeah. this is kind of the early eighties where, you know, it still hadn't become like a heritage site, did it? You know, it was kind of quite vibrant still. Um yeah, yeah, it was kind of it was um, we'd obviously like heard of these places and everything like that, but um, the album didn't come out in America. It was just a four-track EP, so I mean we were pretty much uh, you know acquired taste. I don't, 
I think people came along and sort of like checking us out more than actually really enjoying it like they were doing back in good old blighty yes absolutely what are these young upstarts so did you have a moment in then because then you also you did a john peel session you were on the old gray whistle test so you were sort of like ticking every box that you could really on this front weren't you yeah yeah we've done uh two john peel sessions and uh, yeah hopefully we're going to be bringing them out on a record sometime soon yes absolutely and then what 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 was the moment where you thought where the band thought that's it to quote jim morrison the end then we stopped all collaborating on a day-to-day basis and started uh, getting into different social scenes uh, in england in london and beyond yes Um, and then it was a case of like when people started missing rehearsals I just went, okay, I've had enough of this shit. <laughs> classic. It is a classic, yes. Oh, you know, uh, if we're not going to stick together, then we're not really a band. That was my thinking. Yeah. So then when, you know, as, as, a, as a punter, how does that kind of work? Do you, because obviously the band has had this material, it's probably had some equipment and stuff like that. Do you literally just walk, does everyone just kind of stop doing anything and that's it? And then decades later, people go, oh, by the way, We've got a royalty check for £60. Um, well, no, the singer uh, retained the record deal and brought out a solo single. So he did that. And uh, I tried out for a couple of bands that didn't really... I think I was kind of fed up with the whole thing. Actually, what happened in my mind, what happened was after All About You didn't chart or just kind of like scrape to top 100 i i suddenly felt that things were ebbing away from us and the tide was going out um and we'd had like two or three years of pretty phenomenal good luck and 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 you know good times and i just sort of recognized well these things coming coming waves don't they and um Yes. It, it, this, the kind of good fortune that we've had, um, a lot of bands don't even get that. So when it started to ebb away, I just thought, well, that's it. The moment is passing. The moment is passing. The moment has gone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's gone. So did you sort of just think, oh, put the Qatar away and just get on with life? <laughs> no, nah, by this time I was staying in the flat with a couple of other musicians and we continued to play we formed little bands did local gigs but you know i I could i would try to get people periodically try to get people like alan mcgee interested yes but um you know actually uh, getting your stuff out there was very different at the time because it was like a cassette and then an envelope and a postal and then finally address and then finding the person to send it to like now it's all just like you just log onto your phone and you can do it all there yes I know the, the, you know, it's, the, the dreaded postal order the yeah, well it also cost there was a big uh entry fee to being a pop musician because uh recording was expensive yes. it's not expensive now 
No, no, God, no, everyone can do it virtually at home. But then, interestingly, after all those decades, did you sort of keep, you know, like just get on with life? And then 2010, someone had a brainwave, didn't they? And you had a reunion. I got a job. Um, I got, I was on the dole for a bit. I, got, I was pretty fed up with not. So, and then I, I somehow, a friend came down to London to get a job interview or something. I just tagged along and they were looking with super, <laughs> they just hauled me in off the street and said, you can work, start on Monday kind of thing. So it was just a temporary thing. I, did, I, I spent a couple of years just getting money to pay the rent like that on just any old job. And then I uh, went on a computer course, learned how to be a computer programmer. And I've been in that kind of business for ever since. Ever since. But then, the, so so the, obviously the music then takes quite a sort of backseat. But then 2010, what happens with the scars? The, um, uh, well, yeah, kind of before that, 2006, I got uh, the rights to uh, license the author author um, to make CDs and sell CDs. And we shifted a couple of thousand. So, and then Lemon Jelly um, did a sample of Horror Show. And and then I did a solo gig at Optimo. There was just like little bits and pieces, little milestones that, that uh, kind of, we all started to contact, make contact with each other again. Um, and then the idea of, of doing a gig finally uh, became a reality. Um, there's a, there was a record shop in Edinburgh called Avalanche and we did a benefit concert to, for them yeah. to, to help them um, uh, move to a new location or something like that. And it turned out to be a really big event uh, with the scars we headlined it I think 700 people came along it wasn't just us I mean it was all evening but um, uh, yeah so really good and by this time the Big Gold Dream film was already in production uh, and Grant was there he filmed the concert and uh, so you know after that we did a Mark Riley session on BBC Six music, and um, yeah, and then uh, we remembered uh, we didn't all like each other again. So <laughs> was that was that quite <laughs> even, with, even with decades? Was it like God? <laughs> but at this at this point, we had no no nothing binding us together. So um, we just said, okay, well, I'm I'm as happy about it as I am with it now. Yes, so that was your gig. Um, end of December uh, 2010. Yes. Did you have a nice time when you were on stage? Oh yeah, very much so, yeah. I mean, it's still, still that's what was so amazing about it. We still such a fantastic band, especially as a live unit. It's quite, actually better than it was before because um, I don't know if you, I don't know how deep in Scar's history you, you go, but when uh, when we made uh, author author of the album, um, there was quite a bit of um, uh, negative feedback in terms of you've you've changed, you've sold out, you're playing in a softer style. 
Um, you know, it, this isn't the raw rampaging scars that we remember kind of thing. So when, when we uh, reunited in 2010, we, get, we were still playing those author of songs, but we were playing them with a bit more of the energy that we had previously had when we were live. I think when Author Author uh, was released, I, I certainly felt obliged to handle things in a different way on stage because I wanted to represent the record. Yeah. Uh, where, whereas not, I didn't want people to could be, come along and be disappointed because it didn't sound like our record. Um, whereas now I sort of, we, we looked at the songs again and we give them a bit of a harder treatment. Did you have to do much rehearsal to get that gig together? We rehearsed five times in, and did in it, the space of three weeks. And I always remember that, um, I don't know, I was watching a documentary, it was, it was, I think it was Fleetwood Mac, and they hadn't seen each other for a long time, and they were sitting in the room, you know, waiting for each other to turn up, and the film crew were there. And there was a lot of tension as kind of more people started to arrive, you know, and then it was like... Okay, Stevie's coming in the room, you know, Lindsay, just be cool, everyone. Let's not blow this because, you know, we've got a new album. Someone wants to sign us. There's a lot of money at stake. I mean, did it, what was the atmosphere like with you guys kind of meeting after all those years of all walking in the room together? Well, I don't want to, uh, you know, give too much away, but, um, yeah, there was some tense moments, but everyone really wanted it to work, so it worked. Yes, and then that was that, was that one... Done, really. I mean, we're so, all like grown ups by this point, uh, yeah. at least in theory. In theory, yes. <laughs> we've, all, we've all shaved at least twice a week, which is good. But then, I mean, Cherry Red Records, who's one of those fantastic labels that sort of loves to put things out. Um, when did the idea of putting this uh, triple CD box set well, set together with, with some nice sleeve notes come out come about? Oh, well, it's, it was first uh, got a call from them early last year, I think. And I was quite reluctant initially, but um, we um, kind of, just simply because um, I didn't know if I was wanting to listen to all of the tapes again. There's, there is a lot of homework to be done um, in terms of sifting out, and especially because there was new material hadn't been heard before, demos and the live stuff. And and my first thought was like not doing that because uh, I was worried about quality issues. And there's a reason why we didn't, you know, make this stuff available commercially in the past. Yeah. Um, but by this stage, I think the audience is different now. So the, the audience for this are people who are like really fans and um, they want they want you know they want to hear a different slant on the scars and um, it's not like we're going to open up a new a, a new market amongst the youth or anything like that i think i think we're mostly um, catering for people who know the band already and they want to hear different takes of the stuff mm. and, and and get a view of how songs evolved and and you do get that get that from this retrospective yeah so there's quite a lot of work goes goes into putting this little gig together doesn't there isn't there mm. there is yeah and then of course every there was a lot of time spent sifting through cassette tapes and deciding which was the best take and um 
and, and then remastering, of course. Absolutely. And are you, are you sort of pleased with the final product? I haven't actually listened to it. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> <I've> only... <laughs> yes. I haven't listened to it. Um, I was waiting to, it only came out a couple of weeks ago. I've been waiting to hear what other people think of it. <laughs> right. Well, it was, you know, I mean, I have to say it's beautifully put together now, you know, without sounding too corny. The sleeve notes are stunning, actually, aren't they? They always do a good booklet. Oh, they, I, I know, I mean, Tim, who, who wrote it, is a good friend of mine. And I, I, I knew that he was, uh, uh, I knew that he was particularly keen to do a good job. And he interviewed me for about three hours and he, t- he talked to the other guys as well. And um, I think what he's come out with is, is really great. I'm so pleased for him and, and proud, you know, to be associated with that work. So I'm very happy with the packaging. It's it just fantastic. I like the artwork as well. Yes. Um, and, and I have to say, I mean, it does sound fantastic and it does sound interestingly innovative as well i suppose that's that's what sort of really captured you know that's what i sort of felt playing it because a lot of the material i wasn't that familiar with and um and i think the other thing that's happened or what i've also noticed is that there's kind of a passing of time i put 30 years or 25 to 30 that we you know often sort of take everything for granted and then you suddenly look back not necessarily with rose tinted sunglasses but just suddenly thinking actually looking at it a bit differently and thinking Actually, it's much better than I imagine. You remember, you know, there's a lot of books that have come out recently on fanzines or posters and designs. You know, this guy Barney Bubbles, who did a lot of designs from the public mm-hmm. period and, and I think into the 80s. And then, you know, this guy Neil Taylor brought out his C86 book. And, you, you know, you start to look at all those clubs that happened and different members who, were, who made it happen, you know, created that scene and as well as a lot of the bands. And it's... A lot better than than I remember. Actually, it's quite an interesting thing. I think we just took it all for granted, didn't we, and just went, oh, "That's what happens." Well, it's great to hear. I mean, I always, I also, um, author author was quite really good, and and we'd really achieved something special and different with that. So I've always been proud of it, you know. And the, I can't say that about everything that this guy said, but um, and I, I know a lot of people especially our friends uh, from Edinburgh um, kind of really uh, like horror show and adultery because, you know, it's about our teenage years kind of thing. But as a, like a, as a work, I think author author is still stands up and it's still something to be proud of. I'm really happy with it. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of a, a classic of its time, which is, which is, you know, you can't ask for more, really. I mean, just last question. I mean, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self starter now, I just wondered, you know, with your sort of, you know, the years of reflecting and also experience and sort of going through that process, I wondered what you would have liked us to have been able to whisper to them as they were sort of starting out on that interesting and sometimes murky journey that is rock and roll. Uh, to somebody, uh, To somebody now starting a band. Yeah, well, now, well, perhaps to that person back then, you know, just just what... Well, what would I say to my younger self? Yeah, I mean, what you, like, from, from what you've like learned... This is in, um, in RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> <laughs> at the very end of the series when he asked people, what would you say to you? 
to young Paul. Well, I've yeah. never seen it, but no, no, no. Oh, it what? sounds like I've just, I've just, no, I just sound like I've just um, sort of plagiarised a drag queen. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, that's nothing to be ashamed of. No, no, absolutely. There, there's um, 13 series, you, but you've missed the chance now because lockdown is almost ending, but this is how we spent our time in lockdown. Right, okay. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've watched that much telly in a way, but I did, I did watch a lot. Of, I've been watching a lot of sort of, Interview. There's a lot of interviews on YouTube now from the 70s and 80s. Mm. Um, I, I will answer the question. Uh, oh yeah. Would I, I'd say like enjoy yourself. It's not you don't need to take it too seriously. It will still be good. And um, what the other thing is that like, you can afford to be more confident because um, this is actually really good stuff that you're doing. Yes. Do you really regret not being able to make a second album? Um, kind of, but in another way, the band didn't have it in them uh, at that stage. We we had about half an album, um, the and probably could have could have dragged another one. But Arthur Arthur was really the culmination of something, and and I think that if we had had another year, then we might have come up with something comparable that that would have justified being the second album, but. I think in 1982, we just weren't in that place. Because yeah. it's, I mean, just briefly, because I, I sort of, I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths, because it was a kind of golden period. You know, yeah. they came along, suddenly, you know, things exploded, then sort of 87, they split up, then ecstasy and the music scene had changed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But you were there, you know, did you, during that kind of like, suddenly seeing the Smiths and, Bands like the Go Between and the you know the Wolfhounds, yeah, yeah, no. Did you think, oh shit, we should have been there actually? But this is kind of our scene, and we we should have been like knocking Bono out of the way and be coming. Come on, guys, this is this is we're a bit better than this. Yeah, totally. Um, the uh, when especially with the Smiths, but I mean after after the band finished, I was like in Slayer Despond for about four years. And I couldn't even listen to the Scars for a long time because I was so gutted. And um, and then when the Smiths came along, I, I I sort of loved them and envied them insanely, <laughs> jealous of their success. Um, and at the same time, you know, so these are difficult feelings to work through. Yeah. So I, I just turned my back on the whole music business at that point. Yeah. I did audition for Everything But The Girl in 1984 and they and they said, you've got to join the band and come on tour with us and I actually turned it down because I just thought, well, in six months' time, you know, they'll be looking, looking for another musical style to plunder and I'll be back on the door wondering what to do with myself. Blimey. So. Tracy Thorne, Ben. I know, I'm sure she's destroyed. I hope she, Tracy, I still love you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if you're, did, if did you flick, did you flick through her book and go, did I, did I get meant? No, uh, so it's such a great book. It's, she's so funny. And witty. Yes. Oh my God. I, I, I do, I do regret that I didn't get to be mates with them because I'm sure we would have got on like a house on fire. Yes. God, you could have been there with everything but the girl. Some people think she was missing about me. 
She probably does. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. They don't. <laughs> we could put that out. Yes. No, we, won't, we won't put it out, actually. Someone, someone will shout, that's fake news. <laughs> yeah, better not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that was, yeah, missed moments in life. Shit, that's, yeah. that's, that's what happens, though, isn't it, really? Tracy yeah. Thorne. Crikey. Anyway, look, look, this has been brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much, Paul, for this. This has been great. And uh, yeah, and when I do it, I'll say, I can send you a link if you want, and then you can always mm-hmm. use it on whatever social media platform you like. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what this looks like. I, I think you didn't get me on a very good face day, but we'll... Oh, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't use the... It's nice to see. Actually, it's interesting because in, before Zoom, it was all kind of, I don't know, mostly Skype and stuff. So I never got to see the people, you know. But, um, mm. but eventually, you know, you know Zoom mm. has opened all that world up, hasn't it, really? Mm. So that's been good. But, like it's been the, um, experience for me the first time I've used it. Yes, well, it's not too bad, actually. I've, I've sort of grown mm. to love it, really. And, and it all seems pretty straightforward. But that's great. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And uh, please do send me a link. I'll look forward to uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, listening to a wee bit and then switching it up really quickly. I know. This is, I, know <laughs> I know. It's like I, I often think I should listen to, to these things. And it's like. Actually, I don't have many regrets in my day, but one of them is that I don't sound like a gay pop. And if I, if I did, I, you know, things would have been a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, we could have got, could have been doing all those adverts for one thing, couldn't you, with that voice? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's it. He's fantastic. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, take care. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. I'm ending the meeting. And that is how you say goodbye when you're doing a rock and roll interview, or not. Anyway, look, I love keeping those in because they're so kind of awkward which makes me smile. But uh, that was me, David Eastall, in conversation with the one and only Paul Research from the Scars. Um, yes, as I said, and as we probably mentioned throughout the interview, uh, they do have a uh, this triple CD collection that has just come out, and um, it's going to blow your mind. Do check it out. Cherry Bread of Records. Um, this is uh, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Um, keep it positive. Also, I've got lots of interviews that are podcasts, so you can find those, um, yes, on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, C86 Show again, just C86 Show, that's it. Anyway, look, I'm rambling, I'm mumbling, I'm going to say goodbye. Have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>